Hello, I'm David Bach, Professor of Strategy and Political Economy at IMD, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by my good friend and former colleague, Zoe Chance, a professor at the Yale School of Management and the author of a fabulous book, Influence is Your Superpower. And, and Zoe and I were colleagues during the time that she was doing much of the thinking and research and writing of this book, and, and it's out and people are loving it, and I'm so thrilled, Zoe, that we have a chance to talk about it. So, it seems to me, from reading the book, that anybody who wants to have influence really needs to understand alligators. Why is that? What I believe we really need to understand is the fundamental psychology of how decisions and behavior happen. And what I believe is the key to this is behavioral economics and specifically this framework that's the foundational framework of behavioral economics. For people who are listening, when I say behavioral economics, some people are nodding their heads. Some people don't know exactly what that is. Some people are nodding their heads even though they don't know exactly what that is. Behavioral economics is basically the love child of psychology and economics. The foundational principle is that there are two systems in our minds that work together, sometimes in collaboration, sometimes in conflict, to determine 100% of our thinking and behavior. Behavioral economists will technically call these system one and system two, but when I teach behavioral economics, it's not very sticky, it's kind of hard to remember. So I use the analogy of the gator and the judge. And the big insight here is that one of these systems is conscious and one is unconscious. The judge part is conscious. And because it's conscious, we think that this is the mode that we're in most of the time. It is slow, deliberative, effortful, trying to be rational, trying to be objective like a human judge. And our conscious attention can only focus on one case at a time, just like a judge carefully weighing evidence, pro and con. However, we just think that part is so powerful because it's the only one we perceive. The unconscious one, the gator, is far more influential. And this one, you can imagine it like an alligator lurking below the surface of your conscious awareness, scanning the environment all the time for opportunities and threats. It's very quick to make snap judgments. It's the gatekeeper, but the key feature of an alligator, the real creature, and then also this operation in our subconscious is that it is incredibly efficient and that makes it look incredibly lazy. All you need to know about an alligator is that they actually only need to eat once every three years. They can go every, they can go three years without eating anything at all. So what that means is that they're scanning for opportunities and threats. What they do in almost every situation is nothing. They ignore it. When we're trying to influence other people, when we come across the radar of their subconscious or conscious attention, almost all the time they're going to ignore whatever it is that we're doing, whatever it is that we're trying to influence them to do. That's the dominant response. There are lots of other ways that Gator and Judge can explain behavior that I write about in great detail in the book, but that's the, the nugget of the most important parts. And yet, even though we're not aware of it, we think you know we're in control with our judge when in fact we're sort of in gator mode most of the time. So even though we, we may not be aware of this and it sort of seems hard to grasp, there's sort of fairly predictable pattern about what makes us react one way or another. Can you just give an example or two how behavioral economists have 
has sort of identified things that we do pretty consistently as, as humans and how that links to, say, influence strategies. The reason why I've written the book and the reason why I've been teaching this class at Yale that the book is based on, the class has become the most popular class at the School of Management. The whole idea is to teach people how to become more influential, not just with strategies and tactics, but actually self-development to become someone that other people want to say yes to. So when you reached out, you didn't actually need to say anything more to invite me. Like you didn't need to explain the whole podcast or make a rational argument or explain the platform. All of that didn't matter. You were just like, hey, I'd like to invite you. And I was like, okay, yes, right? And that's not just because you and I are friends, we like each other, but it's because so much of what makes us say yes or no to these opportunities that come our way are interpersonal perceptions, judgments, relationships. So I like to help people on that front. And I also like to help people understand that the majority of what we're doing to make rational arguments is getting ignored. It's not that it's not important. It's just that because the gator is very fast, these snap judgments are instantaneous and they're happening all the time. And the judge is slow. The gator part happens first. So we need to have the gator part work. And the judge often doesn't even come into play. So information isn't impactful until the person is already interested. So we need to go through the route of the gator and sparking people's curiosity or interest or attention before we start to give them all the data and the facts that then they will use as they try to persuade themselves to do the thing that the gator already wants to do. So one of the things that I want to talk to you about is, is the course, because you said modestly that it has become the most popular course at Yale SOM. It has been the most popular course at, at Yale School of Management for many years. And I think it's because so much of what you have put together and is now reflected in this book really resonates with people. One of the things that I know you make your students do and that you encourage your readers to do, I do want to ask you about because you just said, you know, we want to say yes and, and, and how do we sort of approach things so that people feel comfortable saying yes and, and often it is sort of our snap judgment and yet you're actually recommending that people practice saying no. So how is practicing saying no helping us to learn how to get people to say yes? The very first challenge that we do in the class is a 24 hours of no challenge. So anyone who's listening to this conversation, I encourage you to think about trying this out yourself, where for 24 hours, you say no to every single person who asks you for something or invites you to do something. And when you do this, what happens is, first of all, Almost every single person, if I had to put a number on it, I would guess 97% of us are people pleasers even more than we thought. A lot of us kind of know that we're people pleasers, but you realize, oh, it's even more than I realized. My default reaction is to say yes without even thinking about it. And this is also a good insight to have about other people. Their default reaction when you ask them for something is very often just to say yes if they possibly can. Then you realize when you said no, you didn't die and the other person didn't try to kill you. <laughs> you Many of us are afraid that the other person is going to think that we don't like them or they're going to feel bad or they're going to think that we're unkind, greedy, bratty, whatever all of that is. 
And when we practice saying no, you can practice saying no warmly. You can keep it simple. Don't make lots and lots of excuses. But no is a complete sentence. No thank you is a polite complete sentence. And you can even practice saying enthusiastic warm no's. Like, like, oh my God, I would rather die. You can't be mad at somebody who's being enthusiastic when they're declining. So you learn that the other person didn't try to kill you. And you also learn that in most cases, they weren't assuming you're going to say no. They were just hoping that you were going to say no. It's okay. Then there are layers to this. So the no challenge is really this key piece of the trail to becoming more influential. As you practice saying no, you also get more comfortable with the idea of other people saying no because you don't take it so personally. And when you become more comfortable with the idea of them saying no, then when you are asking, you don't have so much pressure. You don't have neediness. And that kind of neediness that we can express when we're asking is repulsive. So when you're taking the pressure off, ironically, they become more inclined to say yes. So this chain of events starts with you saying no, and it ends with other people saying yes. The title of the book is Influence is Your Superpower. And, and I know it's super, you know, Superman colors and script. And, you know, you get this real feeling that this is about using these tools and these insights to have these superpowers. How is influence a superpower? Or how does it empower people to be influential? How do you think about this sort of nexus of influence and power? I really can't believe that we don't get taught about the psychology of influence when we're at least in high school, if not earlier. But there are all kinds of other practical skills we don't get taught, like financial literacy. Influence, though, is the key skill that it takes to getting almost everything that you care about to happen with the likely exception of spiritual enlightenment, and I can't comment on that. But almost every single thing that we hope to do in life requires the willing participation of other human beings. And it starts when we're babies and we are depending on other human beings for our very survival because we, we can't walk, we have no teeth, we have no way of feeding or protecting ourselves. We're influencing other people to preserve our lives and then we learn how to collaborate. We're influencing other people in groups and teams and organizations and our families. And as we dream bigger and we expand the possibilities for what we can do in the world, if you have a grand vision or a great idea or even a tiny idea, exactly what it takes to bring that to fruition is that you influence other people to want to say yes to this idea. So influence is, it's not like a superpower, it's the superpower for getting all of the other things that you want. Do you think people who are good at exerting influence, you describe a number of them in the book, are they aware of this being a superpower? I guess some people are aware of it because they've studied it. And a lot of people are aware that maybe this is a thing and maybe they're good at it. And then a very small number of people are what you might think of as born leaders or naturally charismatic or something like that. But a lot of us imagine that that's most people that we look up to who 
not just have power, but seem powerful and charismatic. And that's, that's a tiny fraction of them. So one of my favorite parts of the book was actually how you're talking about your first Prince concert and you went back to like, you know, Prince in the 1970s, who shall we say wasn't the charismatic Prince that you and I grew up with. When I got to see Prince live in concert, finally, after being a fangirl for decades since I was a kid, I was so excited to see him. And he still remains the most charismatic person I've ever encountered in real life. He was so charismatic that when he takes the stage, he looks, I'm sure, directly into my eyes. <laughs> I feel the laser beam of his attention. And his first line is something like, are we alone? And I turned to my friend who I'm with and I said, oh my God, I'm about to faint. And then the woman next to me on the other side, total stranger, drops to the ground, dead faint, unconscious. The paramedics come in and they're putting on a stretcher. And I said, wow, has this ever happened before? And the guy says, it's not the first time. It was Prince's charisma that just knocked her out. It almost knocked me out. And I would have thought he's one of those naturally charismatic people because it comes across as being effortless. But it turns out, as you were saying, David, when he was young and when he first started performing, he was a great musician. He practiced eight to 10 hours a day. But when Warner Brothers saw him and they did decide to sign him, they said, you're not going on tour ever. Because what we saw was you slowly turned your back to the audience <laughs> facing the wall and you couldn't communicate with us above a whisper. That is not going to fly, but we'll make an album with you. And he got a number one hit on the Billboard charts. It was I Want to Be Your Lover. And at that time, Rick James was doing his super freak tour. And he said, hey, Prince, would you like to come and be the warm up act? So at the beginning of the tour, Prince still sucks as a performer. People are booing him off of the stage. And I'm sure it didn't help that gender fluidity wasn't really a thing yet. And he was wearing women's underwear and stuff. But by the end of the tour, he was practicing and practicing and practicing these skills of charisma, just like he'd practiced and practiced and practiced music. And by the end of the tour, he's getting standing ovations and Rick James is telling people that he's jealous. So I'm not promising that you will knock people out from your charisma. But what I've found through simple techniques and very specific small changes that you can make, and I write about multiple of these in the book and, and there's a whole chapter, but one in particular is an exercise that you can read about that I call shining, that you can do listeners in a group of people. You just need a willing group of people to help you understand when you are connecting with one individual, you connect with one person, and then you shift your attention and you connect with another person while you're speaking, they will feel it, you will feel it. And when I take a beginning public speaker, someone who doesn't enjoy it, feels nervous and doesn't want to be on stage, we can be in a room of 30 people and I can teach them very quickly how to connect with all 30 people in the room in about five minutes. And it's not that you need to connect with each of those 30 people one by one. But when you connect with people one by one, other people feel it. There's a vicarious electric connection. Do you know where I first experienced this and this resonated with me was not at a Prince concert. It was at a Bruce Springsteen concert. And Bruce does the same thing. You can see him look at some people in the eyes, right? And you feel like, this could be me. He could be connecting with me. This, And it feels like he did connect. And, you know, he does this with, you know, I think in this case, it was 60,000 people in a stadium. And no matter how far you are away, you can see him focusing his attention on 
on one person. And, and not only does that make him powerful, it empowers and lifts up the people that he does this to, and by extension, then everybody else in the stadium. I mean, we all felt we were his best friend. And when we think of just the kinds of contexts that we're in regularly, even those of us who do speaking mostly are not on stages, right, or performing. Most of our life we're not on stage, but we have a lot of situations in a day-to-day -day basis where we're in group conversations. And it's interesting to start noticing in a group conversation who gets the attention because it's not random and it's not equally distributed. There are a small number of people in that group who you or the other speaker are focusing on. And maybe it's who has power. Maybe it's who they like. Maybe like who they find attractive or whatever the reason. And once you start noticing the distribution of attention and the inequity of the distribution of attention, you can start to be more equitable with yours so you can be more intentional about who you're talking to and you're including more people. If you're someone who's not, say, a CEO or in a leadership role or having a lot of power, what you can do very simply to be one of the people who the speakers are focusing on, simplest thing you can do is speak up early in the conversation. So say you show up to a group meeting and you're a junior manager. This is the best career advice I've gotten from my worst boss. And <laughs> although we're friends now, we've made up. But he told me as a junior manager, be one of the first three people to speak every time you show up at a meeting. And you don't have to say something smart. You can make a comment in the chit chat before the meeting starts. You could ask somebody a question. You could just voice your agreement with something that somebody else shares. So you don't have to be smart. You just have to register your presence by speaking. And then what you notice, and I've coached a lot of people on this since then, what you notice is that then the other people perceive you as part of the group and they're actually including you in the conversation. And you'll also notice that you have registered your own presence. So you don't feel like an observer, you feel like a participator, and then it's easier to speak up later. I wanted to ask you about one thing. You have a wonderful chapter in the book about your husband's work. And I wanted to just ask you to say a little bit, well, about that, but, but more generally, I think this is a particularly turbulent time. It's a scary time for a lot of people. You know, we're coming out of a pandemic. We're in the middle of a massive conventional land war in Europe. There's another horrific school shooting just yesterday in the United States. And I think a lot of young people, we see this in survey data, feel powerless. They feel, not just young people, a lot of people feel that, that they don't have a lot of power. And yet I know that you wrote this book in part, particularly thinking about young people who care deeply about their communities, about the world. And through some of the stories, including the, the, the wonderful chapter about your husband, you're, you're helping people understand that they have everything they could need to actually have influence and ultimately have power. Can you say a little bit about that and maybe talk about reactions that you may have gotten from young activists, from other people who care deeply and who maybe with the help of some of these ideas feel more empowered to make the world what they think it should be and, and frankly, you know, we all believe it should be. Thank you, yeah. I'm a professor in a business school and I write and teach about how to have more power, not just for business people and people doing business with each other, but for everyone who wants to make 
their life, their community, their organization, the world a better place. And I really feel passionately about the Spider-Man doctrine. I see Yale's mission as being exactly in line with this, but the Spider-Man doctrine, and okay, there are people before in history who said something like this, but I credit Stanley saying, with great power comes great responsibility. So I believe that the path of becoming influential requires us to use that influence and that power for good. And everyone who is already wanting to try to move the needle toward climate solutions, public health, eliminating eventually gun violence, all of these things that we're talking about and definitely figuring out solutions to wars and help for people who are suffering in them, the thing that this takes is us working together and organizing. So we've been talking about individual influence, but the real power to end these massive, massive global challenges that we have is our collective action. And the skill that we need for organizing, again, is interpersonal influence. The chapter that you mentioned about my husband, Balabas, is a story that I wanted to share. So in the book, it goes, it's a reminder and a review of these strategies and techniques that I've talked about. But I wanted to share a story that would be inspirational for people who want to make a difference, but don't have a whole lot of power and something separate from business. So this is a story of one person really making a big difference, changing history. And it's the story of how he was able to plan, organize, and fund the first ever presidential debates in the Arab world. And this is in Tunisia. And as you and I are talking right now, I would say the person who came to power as a result of these debates is certainly not someone that I would myself, knowing how it played out, be celebrating who it is who has power, although the other person who was running in opposition, I think, is pretty clearly not better. So it's not like, you know, you plan these presidential debates and then what ends up happening is this unfamous professor becomes president of a country and then everything is great. No, everything is still troubled. But this is the work of democracy. This is the work of climate change. It's the work that we all do together is each of us figuring out a piece and then finding like-minded other individuals so that we can band together and so we can do more great work. For me, the issue I care about most out of all of these things, maybe because I feel like it's where I can make a good difference is climate change. So with this book that I've written, I'm donating half of my profits toward 350.org and other organizations that are working on the climate crisis. And I'm working on helping in ways like wanting to shift the frame for how we talk about human beings instead of calling them consumers. My field is called consumer behavior. And it makes me crazy that we refer to other human beings as consumers, and this absolutely contributes to the behavior that causes the climate crisis. So that's just one specific, concrete example of what are things that we can do. We find how we can move the needle and the skills that I share in the book. And we're talking about the book, but will help. The book, there's also a class that I'll be launching for free in the fall is called How to Ask for Anything, and it will be translated into at least eight different languages and available on Coursera. That's awesome. So maybe last thing really quickly, what, what are some of, the, some of the favorite responses you've gotten 
as you have talked about the book or as people have reached out to you. Again, I, I'm turning to the book, but I, but I loved how you finished the book and basically said, hey, you know, I loved writing this book. Let's stay in touch. Let's be friends. So I, I'm sure people have taken you up on this. What are some of the fun things that have happened? Getting the love notes from readers is the best thing. I think probably not just for me, but probably for any author. And hearing that people are excited, hearing what they're doing with your book, differences that they've made. I think one of the things that was the biggest honor for me is this local plumbing business in New Haven, Connecticut has a book club and they've been reading a chapter from my book every single week. And it's this kind of grassroots thing where people are you know, like it's not C-suite executives and the kind of people that I teach at Yale, but real people doing real work, running their businesses. And that's just a, a simple, concrete, personal one. Another fun one has been there was a professor in California who read about this challenge called the Bigger and Better Challenge that I do with students. And in the book, I tell the story of the craziest thing that students have traded up for between a Monday and a Thursday was actually from a paper clip to a car. And it was exciting, unlikely. This professor got interested in doing this with his students. So he asked me for the materials and I shared stuff with him. And then he got back to me and he was so excited that a couple of his students in one week had traded up from a paperclip to a horse named Dum Dum. And he sent me a picture of the horse. <laughs> this was really fun. Other things that people have done on a larger scale include policy changes, like someone at the New York Times used this technique that I teach to have a series of conversations that led to the New York Times being the first media company probably in the world, but definitely in the States, to cover egg or sperm freezing for their employees who wanted to have more control over their reproductive life. And another situation was a strategy director at Turner Networks used a technique that I teach again, in a series of conversations to create an internship program for underrepresented minorities, and it's paid internships. And I was super excited to hear about that. There's so many different things, but yeah, it's the biggest, biggest treat is when people reach out to you and they're like, hey, guess what? Here's what I did. And I'm so proud. I feel like a mom, proud of her kids or a teacher, proud of my students. It's great. Look, I, I think the treat is the book, and the treat is the conversation we just had about it. I absolutely love the book. I've recommended it to people. They love it. And, you know, having seen you work on it passionately and, and try it out on students and, and, and change the lives of so many students, and now as a result of the book and, and then the free course in the fall, you know, change the lives of, of so many people and providing them with, with the skills and tools to make a difference in their families, in their communities, in their organizations in the world is just awesome. So, well done. My superhero, love the book. Thank you.